been two weeks, so we have to uh, back in 1 Samuel chapter 30. Uh, we'll start in verse 16 through the end of the chapter. Uh, we left off when um, the young Egyptian servant led David and his men down to the camp. And that's where we'll, the story picks up. And when he had brought him down, behold, they were spread all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David slaughtered them from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped, except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and rescued his two wives. But nothing of theirs was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that they had taken for themselves. David brought it all back. And so David captured all the sheep and the cattle, which the people drove ahead of the other livestock. And they said, this is David's spoil. When David came to the 200 men who were too exhausted to follow David, who had also been left at the brook Besser, and they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And David, then David approached them and the people greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless men among those who went with David answered and said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered except to every man his wife and his children, that they may lead them away and depart. Then David said, You must not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us, who has kept us and delivered into our hand the band that came against us. And who will listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down to the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And so it has been from that day forward that he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. Now when David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, to his friends, saying, Behold, a gift for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord, to those who were in Bethel, and to those who were in Ramoth of the Negev, and to those who were in Jatir, and to those who were in Aror, and to those who were in Sifmoth, and to those who were in Eshemoah, and to those who were in Rakal, and to those who were in the cities of the Jeremielites, and to those who were in the cities of the Kenites, and to those who were in Horma, and to those who were in Borishan, and to those who were in Athich, and to those who were in Hebron, and to, and to all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to go. He got all the place names in. I think he did a good job. That's, that was pretty impressive. Um, when we sang that uh, Revelation song, Kyle mentioned it was kind of a taste of heaven. And as you know, Lisa and I were out of town, a handful of us were out of town last week at, uh, at Kayla Krumrai's wedding. And uh, so the wedding was on uh, Saturday, we went to church on Sunday morning, and then Sunday evening, all the alumni of this church got together. It was everybody who had attended here. We went out for uh, dinner at this steakhouse 
which Daniel picked out, and it was by far the best steak I have ever had in my life. 24-day uh, dry-aged steak. It was great. But the food, as good as it was, it, it wasn't comparable to what we were experiencing. Because, like, there were a couple of us that still go here, but there were folks who had been gone for a little while, folks who had been gone for a while. And the reason that we were all in that room together is because of our mutual love for Jesus Christ. And so I, it just struck me as I was sitting there looking around, it was like, this is what heaven will be like. We'll be at the feast of the Lamb, celebrating and remembering what God has done in each one of our lives. All of our old friends, all of our new friends will all just be gathered together at this feast. And it was just such a joy. Uh, Daniel and Linda Holmquist, they were, Daniel was the previous pastor before me here. Um, they were there. Um, that was kind of the moment of joy. <laughs> Uh, I wanted to make a little bit of an announcement before I pray because I'm going to pray for Daniel. Um, he's going through chemotherapy, and so I kept watching him to see if he was getting tired and we'd, you know, kind of back off from him, uh, give him a chance to rest because chemo really takes a lot out of you. He's going through chemotherapy, but um, on Thursday, I think it was, he submitted his letter of resignation to Calvary Evangelical Free Church in New Jersey. Um, I got a look at the letter. It was very generous and very kind. It, it was really a very nice letter, but he's going through some struggles with that church, and there's there's some problems. So um, we need to be praying for him because I think his severance package is he'll be there for like three more months, and then he has to move out of the parsonage, and he's no longer their pastor. He's got cancer, and he needs medical insurance, and that's going to go away, and so there's, there's a lot of needs that they're facing. Um, Lisa and I got to spend uh, Labor Day Monday at their house, and I kept looking at Daniel like, is he getting tired or are we overstaying our welcome? But he, he was great. Uh, the Reese's came over, and you know when it was time to leave, we laid hands on Daniel and prayed for him. And when we met Ramey the next day uh, at, the, at his house, Ramey said, I just came out of a, a staff meeting. Daniel talked about what an encouragement it was to have you guys there constantly. He mentioned it three or four times. So just know that Trinity, we are an encouragement to our previous pastor. Um, we love him and we care for him. So I'm going to pray for him, but I just wanted to let you know what's going on. He's got a lot of big things going on in his life. Um, so uh, let's, let's pray. Lord, that is such a beautiful vision of heaven that we will be together with our friends in Christ, with, with those we share this common bond of salvation faith and love in Christ together. And, and Lord, you've promised it will be the wedding feast of the Lamb, um, the best wine, the best food, um, the best fellowship, set freed from sin, just delighting in what you have done and who you are. What a joy that we get to experience that. And so, Lord, I pray that that, that vision, that hope, that promise that lays ahead of us would be an animating force in our lives, that we would live as people of hope, that we would live with the expectation that the world can get better or worse, but the end is so much better than any of it. So thank you for that. And Lord, I want to lift up my brother Daniel, and I just pray for his healing. Uh, Lord, uh, his, his cancer indicating numbers have been way up and down and, and back and forth. Lord, would you bring about a miraculous healing in him, that they just return to normal for no good reason, just because, because you have ordained it, because you have announced that that's what would happen. Lord, would you help his body to heal from the surgeries, regain strength, um, 
help him to get off the, the drugs that they have to keep him going and, and just restore his health. Lord, he's, he's got so much more energy and vision for where he can serve the church best. And so I pray that you would bring that about. Lord, I want to pray for his wife, Linda, our sister in Christ as well. Um, it's hard for her to watch her husband to go through all these things, to go through this kind of suffering. And Lord, she is in that move and in that, um, that, that job change and all of those things too. So uh, Lord, would you remind her that you love her and care for her and that you provide for her as well. And Lord, we pray that uh, whatever comes next for Daniel and Linda, would you make that abundantly clear and soon and help them to transition really smoothly into their next place that you're calling them to serve. Um, Lord, have mercy on them. And Lord, we want to pray for Calvary Evangelical Free Church. As, as Daniel is departing, they will go into a pastoral search process again. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would bring them a, a, a pastor, a man who could lead them well, who could um, shepherd them in right and good ways, could help the church come to a really strong, healthy place, and uh, help them to rebuild and, and reach out to the community around them. And so, Lord, would you move whatever needs to be moved in that process to, to open up a path for Calvary to head forward to growth and grace and to look more like Jesus. And so we pray that you would bless them. Lord, I pray those same things for us. Lord, would you help us to be um, more Christ-like tomorrow than we were today? Would you help us to grow to be the kind of people that you have saved us and are building us into? And, Lord, I know that uh, that comes through faith. It comes through the work of the Spirit. It comes through the the input that we get from your word. And so bless now the hearing and the, the teaching and the preaching of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Got to apologize. I am not 100% today. I got home from school yesterday and just was blah. Um, woke up at about four this morning and I think it was around six. All of a sudden I went, I feel better. But my brain was not present. So if this is not my best sermon, I'm sorry. Um, I'm trying. Um, but we'll get there. We'll, we'll get there. Just a reminder of where we're at, okay? So we're in 1 Samuel. We've been working our way through. Since about halfway through the book, we met Dan David. And what we've been seeing going on is David is heading towards the throne, and Saul is heading away from the throne. And so now we're in chapter 30, almost the end of the book. And this is where things kind of begin to, to hone down to that point where they're going to transition. So chapter 26 was David spared Saul again. He snuck into the camp. He took his spear and his water jug. And instead of killing Saul, he yelled to him and, and said, look, I'm not trying to kill you. I'm, I'm, I could have taken your life twice. But then by chapter 27, David is just afraid. He's, he's, David's not Superman. He's not anything you know different than you or I made out of the same mud we're made out of. And so he was afraid. And so he said, there's nothing better for me than to flee to the Philistines. Saul couldn't easily go into the Philistine territory and take David. That would be an invasion, and the Philistines would, would uh, war against them. So it was a complicated relationship. Um, then all of a sudden in chapter 28, we switched to see what Saul is doing. And Saul has seen that the Philistines are, are mounting to invade, and he inquires of the Lord and gets no answer. No answer from dreams or prophets. He doesn't have access to the Urim and the Thummim, the, the um, lots that they would cast. And so he's just desperate because the Philistines have now mounted and they're right at the border. They're ready to invade. And so he says, is there a medium in, in, uh, in the land that I can go to? And so he goes to the witch of Endor, the medium of Endor. And she says, who should I call up for you? And he says, call up Samuel. And she's terrified when it works. 
scared the daylights out of her. It wasn't supposed to work like that. Samuel goes, why are you disturbing me? And he eventually tells Saul, yes, you're going to get invaded. Yes, you're going to fight the Philistines. Yes, Israel is going to be given into their hands, and you're going to die. And that's it. We, don't, we won't meet Saul again until next chapter. We switch back to David's story. This is, actually takes place before, he goes, uh, before Saul goes to Endor. David has mustered with the troops of the Philistines in chapter 29. He, he is ready to, to go into the battle. Now, we said we don't know what he was planning on doing because he never got to do it. As he's marching into battle, the lords of the Philistines say, we don't want these Hebrews here. They're going to turn on us. And so they send David home. And so in chapter 29, David and his men turn around and they march three days again south back to Ziklag. When they got there, chapter 30, what they found was the city had been burned and looted. There was nothing there. What we saw last week was David's men are so bitter in spirit. They were so upset. They're ready to, they're considering actively, openly speaking, should we stone David? Should we kill him because he took us into battle and left nobody here to protect our city? All of our children, all of our wives, all of our possessions are gone. Our houses are burned. So they were that bitter. They were that upset. And so what we saw David do last week was he inquired of the Lord. And the Lord said, go, pursue, you'll overtake, and you'll get everything back. And so that's, that was David's experience. Now this week, oh, then, then what he did is, is they launched out on their expedition to try to find who raided their town. And they came across this young Egyptian man wandering in a, in a field. And it turns out he was one of the slaves of the Amalekites, and he'd been sick. And now he's just kind of in a haze walking around. He hasn't probably eaten for days. And David and his men rescue him, and they, they find out what's going on. And he says, yes, I will lead you to the Amalekite camp if you promise me two things. Number one, you won't hand me back over to my master. And number two, you don't kill me. And so that was the conditions, and they go. So that's where we're at now is, is David is inching closer and closer to that throne. Because we're looking at the story of David. When we get next week to look at what happens with Saul, we're going to see that by this point, Saul is probably dead. David has no way of knowing it, but that's probably what's, what's happened. And so David is, is inching closer to the throne in a way he might not even actually realize. What we'll see, though, is as God is preparing Saul to move him into the throne of Israel, is we're going to see that it's a representation of God's kingdom. And one of the marks of God's kingdom is this superabundance, this overflowing generosity in his kingdom. So verses 16 through 20, we'll look at the prophesied rescue. The, uh, God had said, you're going you're gonna to overtake them, you're going to rescue, it's going to be great. We'll see that happen. In 21 through 25, we'll see David demonstrate what I would call his kingdom generosity. He's going to do something that, that is going to be like a king, and it demonstrates a generosity. And then finally, in 36, or, yeah, 26 through 30, through 30? Yeah, I thought it was 26. Okay, so 26 through 30, uh, with all the place names and, and family names that Jim nailed, uh, what we'll see there is this kingdom excess, this overflowingness of the kingdom. So let's go ahead and take a look. Verse 16 says, and when he had taken him down, of course what that means is when David had taken the Egyptian down, or when the Egyptian had taken David and his men down to where the Amalekites were, behold, they were spread across the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and the land of Judah. That phrase, that, that word uh, spread over the land, in Hebrew it's actually the word for um, um, forsaken. 
So they were spread over the land, they were forsaken. What does that mean? And why is it a good translation to say spread over the land? This is a military unit. Their leaders are not keeping them organized as a military. They have forsaken their assembly. They have forsaken what they're supposed to do as a military unit. So they're spread all over the land. They are celebrating. Man, they just had the best raid in the universe. They didn't lose anybody except for that Egyptian slave, but who cares about him? They got all of this stuff from the Philistines and from Judah. Man, this is, this is time to party. This is time to celebrate. Um, so that's what they're doing is they've spread out across the plain and they're they are enjoying what they got. They're, they're delighting in it. They're feasting. They're drinking too much. All of that. They're having a great time. One of the principles of war is something called mass. And what you mean by mass and the principle of war is you should be able to focus all of your resources on a specific objective at a specific time. So to be able to do that, you have to keep your troops organized. You have to be able to blow the horn and have the troops engage in the fight. The Philistine or the Amalekites have apparently forgotten that principle of war. They are not going to be able to muster their troops and get them to engage David. Um, the amount of people that are here, it's never listed, but it's remarkable that the author kind of says, you know, only 400 of them got away. So that must mean there's a lot of people involved. Some of the uh, commentators were thinking 1,000, 2,000 people because only 400 of them got away. So this is a big mass of people. If they had engaged in that principle of war, kept their troops in order, they, might, they would have been able to overcome David. He only had 400 troops, and they were exhausted. They marched three days north. They marched three days south, and now how many days have they been out on the land looking for them? As a matter of fact, they had to leave 200 of them by the book of Besor because they couldn't go any further. So they're in a, at a huge military disadvantage. The Amalekites could win this, but they forgot that you don't celebrate before it's over. Um, I'm glad the projector broke because I was going to show a little video and then I decided not to. Have you ever seen, it's football season, you're going to get a lot of football illustrations now. Have you ever seen somebody running into the, field, the end zone and drop the ball before they get there? I just watched a video of a guy, he, he, cat, he caught this ball, it was a beautiful pass, he caught it, he takes off down the middle of the field, leaves two defenders behind him, and as he gets to the end zone, he reaches down and drops the ball. And when they turned, and when they looked at it from another uh, angle, you could see he was about a yard short, and he dropped the ball. He celebrated too early. I've seen that a number of times. People just get excited and celebrate too early. The Amalekites are celebrating way too early. And so they're spread out. They're all over the place. They are not concentrated. They're not ready to attack. They're gorging themselves. They're, they're too well fed. They're probably half drunk, if not all the way. And they're just indulging. And so when David and his men show up, it's not any kind of competition. Because David and his men, even if they're tired from marching, they are functioning as a military unit. They are prepared to engage. And they have a huge incentive. I've got to rescue my kids. I've got to rescue my wife. My savings account is that flock of sheep I had. I need to go rescue that. So they're highly motivated. They're ready to engage. And so that's what they're going to do. And so verse 17 says, And David struck them down from twilight until evening of the next day, and not a man escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David charged into the battle, and he just started working his way across, working his way through the, the lines of these people spread out over the, the, um, um, the field, spread across that plain, and he starts taking them out. I can imagine that the front edge... They were taken completely by surprise. By the time he gets to about the middle, they're beginning to, the word's spreading, and by the time he gets halfway through, 
They may have tried to muster their troops, but they're not ready for battle. They're, they're, they're way, eat, they've eaten too much. They probably don't have quick access to their weapons. They're, you know, partying. So it's, it sounds like it's too much to believe that 400 men could take on over 1,000, but it's actually very plausible. It's, it makes a lot of sense when you look at it. Here's the part that is amazing. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything else that was taken. David brought all back. That's the amazing part. Because they must have missed something, because these guys are partying, so they must have been, you know, munching on their, their cattle or something. Or maybe it was the, the Philistines' ones that they, they got. It doesn't matter. He got everything back. That, that can't happen, right? That's impossible. Well, it is in, in normal human terms, but this is not normal human warfare. This is spiritual warfare. This is something that God is doing. God had promised David, you will recover them all. So it's not that, that David was such a brilliant military commander that he's able to do this. It's not his expert planning and everything. It was because God had told him that. This is what's going to happen. You're going to recover everything. And that's what he did. He recovered it all. David brought it all back. So verse 20 says, David also captured all the flocks and herds and the people drove the livestock before him and they said, this is David's spoil. And in the ESV, there's a footnote that says, this is unclear. The verse in Hebrew is unclear. Um, so what does it mean that this is David's spoil? All the hurdle, all the cattle and herds and everything are David's spoil? It's probably not what that means. Um, a literal translation of the verse would be, and David took all the sheep, but the cattle they drove before the livestock and said, this is David's spoil. So perhaps David, the sheep herder, the shepherd, maybe he took the sheep as his spoil and they let everything back. Maybe that's what that means. Whatever it is, they recognize that David is the one who's responsible for this. This is what's happened. So don't forget why this is significant. This is not, like I said, David's cleverness. Um, in chapter, at the beginning of the chapter, in verse 8, it said, And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. God has granted him success. This is, what the, this is why I say this is kind of a picture of the kingdom of God, is God is actively engaged in what is going on here. God is actively leading them to, to uh, succeed in this endeavor. So this next section is kingdom generosity. What does it look like in the kingdom of God to be giving, uh, so giving and so generous? Um, verse 21, David came to the 200 men who had been exa too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook of Besor. And when they went to meet David and to meet the people who were with him, and when David came near to the people, they greeted him. So these are the 200 troops that were just too exhausted. They couldn't go any further. They made it to the brook. And so the, the deal was, we'll leave all our equipment here. You guys keep an eye on it. We'll go fight in the battle. So when they're waiting, they have no idea how the battle has gone. They don't know what's happened. But can you imagine when they saw the first couple of flock, big flocks heading their way and, and they heard all the cattle coming in and Oh my gosh, they were really successful. This is great. So they go out with great, I'm being attacked by a fly. Um, so it, it's kind of hard to concentrate when a fly is buzzing in your face. Uh, so they're excited to greet them. This is great news. We, you guys won. Verse 22 says, And then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, 
the wicked and worthless fellows who were with David. There were wicked and worthless fellows in David's army. What we have to... This is really frustrating. The fly will not leave me alone. Uh, this, is really this is really frustrating. This is really something because what we have to remember is, you know, we're used to seeing our heroes on television and our movies, and there's the good guys that wear white hats and the bad guys that wear black hats, and they're totally separate things. The reality is humanity is kind of a mixed bag. People are good. People are bad. Sometimes bad people are good. Sometimes good people are bad. It's just kind of all over the place. And so David's um, army, his, his troops, is really a mixed bag of people. Uh, back in chapter 22, it explained it this way, if you remember this. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and his father's house heard it, they went there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was in bitter in soul and everyone who had a fly bugging them while they're trying to preach gathered to him. And he became commander over him, over them. And there were with him about 400 men. So David's troops have always been the wrong sorts of people. People in distress, people who were depressed, people who owed a lot of money. That's what his, his kingdom looks like at this point. So included in that are wicked and worthless people. And thank God that his kingdom is like this. Because it's, it's not just for people who have it all together. It's not just for the rich and the powerful. It's not just for the in crowd. It's for people like you and I. It's for the com complicated, for the conflicted, for the confused. It's, it's for doubting Thomases and denying Peters. That's what it's like. And, and Paul mentions this in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? What? The unrighteous won't? I'm sunk. Hold on. He goes on. Do not be deceived, neither the morally, I'm sorry, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. We're all out, you guys. We're, we're, nobody gets in, right? Almost done. And some were such of you. And such were some of you. I'm sorry. And such were some of you. We were in that camp, but we're not there anymore. You have been washed. You have been sanctified. You have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Holy Spirit of our God. That's the nature of the kingdom. So it should be alarming that there were wicked and worthless fellows with David. It should also be greatly comforting because they're brought into the kingdom. And the good news is God doesn't want to leave them there. He doesn't just say, come in as you are and stay the way you are. He says, come into the kingdom and such were some of you, past tense. I'm working in your lives. I'm working to make you holy. I'm working to bring you along. So it's good news for us that the kingdom is not about being perfect to get in. It's about being perfected after you're in. And so look at how David deals with these wicked and worthless fellows. He says, you shall not do so, my brothers. He calls the wicked and worthless, my brothers. You shall not do that. That's not how this should work. He's inviting them in. He's drawing them in. He wants them to be more than who they are, to grow, to be better at this. So he says, um, not so. Um, you shall not do so, my brothers. 
what, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given to our hands the band that came against us. God has given us this victory. So then in verse 20 says, 24, he says, who would listen to you in this matter? That's an odd thing to say, isn't it? Who would listen to you? What he's saying is, what you're saying really doesn't make any sense. But does it? Think about this for a second. Band of 600 marches south, 200 are too exhausted to engage in battle. 400 press on, and they kill over 1,000 people. They rescue all the goods. They are the ones who put themselves at risk. They are the ones who went and put themselves on the line. We won this. We should get this. So no, I mean, it's not fair that they're going to get the same cut. They didn't do anything. But David says, who would listen to you in this? There's something deep in us that says there's something right about this. There's something right about treating people fairly and equitably and, and handling things like that. And so it, it makes me think of, of the parable that Jesus told of the vineyard owner in, um, in Matthew 20. He said, and when evening came, oh, I'm sorry, he says, for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. So at the beginning of the day, he goes out and he hires some people. He does that two more times, at the third hour and at the 11th hour. He goes and hires more people, and he brings them in, and they work his vineyard. And then Jesus goes on. He says, and when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those hired at about the 11th hour came, each was given a denarius. Now when those who hired at first came, they thought they would receive more, but each one also received a denarius. How is that fair? That's not right. We did more work than them. Well, Jesus goes on and explains it. He says, and on receiving it, they grumbled at the matter, at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only for an hour, and you made them equal to us, and who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. And he replied to one of them, saying, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I chose to give to, to the last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do, with, do, do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. What David does by insisting that those who guarded the baggage get an equal share with everybody else is exactly what Jesus is talking about here. This is an upside down kingdom. It's not a matter of parity. It's not, it's not an equity across everything. It is a matter of generosity. David is going to be generous to these men. He's going to give them an equal cut because not only was it the stuff from Ziklag, it was also from other places that were raided. So there's an abundance. There's an overflowing abundance. And don't forget, God gave them this victory. So this is God pouring out his abundance on his people. And David doesn't go, well, I'm going to keep it for myself that flows out. It goes out from them and he gives to others. He gives generously to others. And so David recognizes the generosity of his master and he demands it of his troops. Not so, my brothers. What the Lord has given to us, he has preserved us and he's given into the hands of the band that came, about, uh, came uh, against us. So then verse 25, the, uh, the author steps in for a moment and he makes a statement. He says, and he made it a statue and a rule in Israel from that day forward to this day. 
This is a foretaste of David's kingship. David is not the king yet, as far as he knows. He's simply leading his men in the best way he thinks possible. But this statute that those who guard the bags get an equal share, not only was that established then, now David is acting king-like. This becomes a statute for all times because this is what the kingdom of God is like. So we get that foretaste of David as the king. Now the last part seems almost like antithetical. It, all, it kind of feels like it's out of place, verses 26 through 30. Uh, when David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, here's a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. So he sends money forward. He gives it to other people. He, he sends on to the, the people in Israel. Now, um, I've been, for the last six weeks, part of a cohort that is studying the book Biblical Critical Theory. It's written by Chris Watkins. And um, just a real quick explanation. Biblical critical theory is not criticizing the Bible. It, it's what uh, Watkins does is he, he takes the story of redemptive history from creation to the new creation, from creation, fall, restoration, and all that. And he says, here's how the storyline of the Bible plays out. Now let's use that to critique our culture. Our culture wants this. They strive for this. But look at how the Bible handles it. And so that's what he's been doing. He's been working through different things. This last week, he came to the cross, to the crucifixion. And he handled it in a way that was really surprising to me. I had not thought about it this way. He's not denying penal substitutionary atonement. He's not saying that it, the greatest thing that happened on the cross was the Son of God, the eternally begotten Son of God, died for sinners. That Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin in our place. He's not saying that's not the most important, the biggest one, but he said, I want to look at it from a slightly different way. And so what he says is he talks about the excess of the kingdom, the superabundance of the kingdom. He says the world was lo is locked in this logic of equivalence, you do this, you get paid this. You get a fair wage for this. You know, we're going to make things even and equal. And he said, the, the thing is that the Bible doesn't look at it that way. The, the cross is the superabundance of God's grace. Instead of tit for tat, it is God's grace pouring out more and more. And if you look through the New Testament, pay attention to um, words like abounding more and more, or more so, or uh, those kind of things. They're all over the place. So in other words, in the kingdom of God, it's not... Uh, karma, you did this much good, you get this much good back. That's karma. That's fair, right? The Bible's story is grace. You did all of this wrong and I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to make it possible for you to be forgiven. That's the superabundance. It's pouring over. It makes karma look terrible. If you were offered those two deals, you'd go, I don't want karma. I want grace. Give me more of that. So that's the picture of the, 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 the cross. It is this superabundance. So when Paul talks about the cross, like in, in Romans chapter 5, he can't hold himself back. He talks about how Adam ruined it. Adam sinned and he brought destruction to the world. When Jesus came along, it wasn't, now Jesus just restored everything back to the way it was. He says, how much more, if this happened under Adam's sin, how much more is the grace of God poured out on the cross? How much greater is the, the redemption that we experience because of what Jesus has done? So let me just read it for you, Romans uh, 5, beginning in verse 15. But the free, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. 
And the free gift is not, like, is not like the result of one man's sin. For judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So do you get that super abundance? Sin was bad. The response, God's response to sin was not, well, let's, let's you know, make it equal. God's response to that is, I'm going to pour out even more on top of that and make it so much better. So when we look at David at this point, when David is back to Ziklag and they're, they're sweeping the ashes and they're beginning to find where their house was and put things back together, they've got tons of spoil. And so what he does is he sends it on to his friends in Israel. And, and some of the commentators, you know, look at it a little bit cynically. He's just trying to win friends. He's trying to buy some friends. But really, there's nothing in the text that makes it sound so, so cynical, so worldly, does it? He, they're described as his friends, people who he sojourned with. What David is doing is he's practicing that superabundance of the kingdom, that overflowing grace. God not only restored what they had lost, which is a miracle in itself. He poured out even more on them and more and more. He gave them so much more. And so David doesn't turn into a one-way street and say, it's all for me. He says, God is so generous and so overflowing. I've got to share this with other people. And so he pours it out on his friends. I don't think he's trying to buy their loyalty. He doesn't, I don't think he even knows he's king yet. What he's doing is he's just saying, I sojourned with you. I, I wandered in your lands and you took care of me enjoy this. I know we're friends. I want you to have more. And so he just pours out on them. David's largesse to his friends was not attempting to bribe them. It was just pouring out God's goodness over and over and over again. So I don't think it's a, it's a wrong answer to, or I think it is a wrong answer to think that David was being so cynical. This is, this is what the kingdom is like. Isn't that what our, what we're, our participation in the kingdom is like? God has forgiven your sins. He sent his only begotten son to die for you when we were yet enemies of God. He pardoned us when we didn't want to be pardoned. He rescued us when we thought we were doing fine. And not only did he rescue us, he then sends and seals us with his Holy Spirit. He pours out more and more on us. He gives us each other. He gives us brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage us when we have cancer and getting, uh, leaving our church. He, he does all of these things, just continually pouring out more and more and more. So what are you supposed to do with it? What do you do with these great, great gifts that God has given you? If you really understand everything that God has done, you pour it out on the next person. You give it to the next person. Who else can benefit from this? Who else can, can be part of this overabundance of the kingdom? Who else needs to be delivered from karma and given grace? Who wants to be at the wedding feast of the Lamb? I want more people to be there. I want more folks to be at the table with us. That is the superabundance of the kingdom. That's what the kingdom of God is like. So that's what we get a taste of here. It's, it, we get just a glimpse of it in David's rule. And he hasn't even ascended the throne yet. He's just beginning his rule. But the greater David is going to come along. David's better son. And he's going to reign and rule perfectly. So let's, let's get on board with that. Let's participate in that superabundance. Let's give away more. You can't lose. You only gain. Let's close in prayer. 
Lord, you, you have poured out on us so many wonderful things. And Lord, we want it to be uh, comfort, wealth, and fame in this life. We want people to know and esteem us. Uh, we want to be beautiful and uh, fit as a fiddle and all of these other things. And Lord, as we were praying this morning, having read that First Corinthian passage, under the weight of glory, those things will, will fit into the place they belong. They won't disappear. They won't be thought of as evil. They will fit where they belong. And instead, Lord, we will be shown something even greater. We will be shown your superabundance, your overflowing gifts and graces to us. And Lord, that will satisfy our hearts more than that car or that computer or that video game ever would. Lord, would you remind us of that on a regular basis, to have hearts that are so heavenly that they're overflowing with grace here on the earth. And Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.